If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Coming up on this week's show, one of Sega's biggest franchises is back. Fans restore the Super Mario movie. And we talk about modern retro consoles with the guys from Evercade. The Retro Owl podcast is brought to you each week with our amazing friends at Bitmap Books. Now, if you're a fan of the C64, you need to check out Commodore 64, a visual compendium celebrating one of the most popular home computers of all time and taking you on a journey over 500 pages through its incredible library. You can check out that and lots more on their website at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 278, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to this week's show. And when I say warm... I do mean warm. I'm hoping that a bead of sweat is not going to drop from my brow into my mixer and short it out today. It is warm here in the UK. It's really warm. I'm, I'm like, I was about to say something really rude then, but I'm sweating so much. <laughs> like, I'm just sat here with like all the windows open and stuff. I'm hoping it doesn't affect the recording too much. But usually, like, I'm locked in the man cave with the door closed and stuff. But it, it just can't happen today. We're, as soon as it gets to like 25 degrees, that's it. Like. It's, we just don't function right in the UK, do we? No, no. And everyone always complains as well. They're like, oh, I really I really hate this rain and this bad weather. And then it gets hot and they're like, oh, it's too hot, isn't it? Guys? My, my <laughs> wife literally said that today. It's nice when you're on holiday, but when you've actually got to function, like, you know, when you've got to work and you've got to do stuff and you've got to do your podcast, it's not nice. <laughs> Well, I was thinking before, actually, because you know, obviously, you know, gaming, memories of Christmas is when you got new video games and everything. But I was thinking retro gaming and summer also kind of go hand in hand for me as well. I mean, I don't know if you guys were the same. I've got memories on like, you know, those endless summer holidays, going around friends' houses. We'd go to like Martin's house because he'd have a Super Nintendo. Then we'd go to Ricky's house because he had a Mega Drive for a bit and I'd take the dog and his parents would give you food. And then on a Saturday, we'd go to the seaside and play, you know, the arcade games as well. So I have got strong memories of gaming as a kid in the summer holidays. Yeah, totally. I was exactly the same. And we, we used to swap our Mega Drive with our cousin Snez or with my uncle Snez over the six weeks holiday. So, that mm. you know, plenty of retro gaming there or as much as we possibly could before our parents would kick us out of the house as they go play out. Um, but today, I mean, we have got a really interesting show now. Obviously on the show, I mean, we'll kind of go behind the scenes on the companies that brought us video games and consoles and systems from our childhood. But also, we like to cover modern developments in the world of retro gaming as well. And today, we're going to be joined by... Andrew Byatt and Sean Cleaver, who work at Evercade. And they're a company, actually, that we cover a hell of a lot on the show, actually. They've got so many really cool new developments all the time. It's interesting, the Evercade, because when I first saw it, I thought, right, a, a, a handheld console, it was it was first handheld, and now they've got the Evercade VS, which is a kind of home-based console for multiplayer. But um, when it first came out, I was like, a cartridge system. They're bringing out a kind of retro emulation cartridge system when you've got all these other ones with sd cards and you can load it in and then they're going to have a limited selection on this cartridge 
But actually, the appeal of having something that's been picked for you mm. and is on a cartridge and, and at a reasonable price as well, it is really, really reasonable. And, you know, having that cartridge and just those games, you can explore and find new titles. And they've got so many cool titles on there as well. They've got, like, the Atari collection on there, uh, Interplay. You know, they've got modern stuff as well, like uh, Xeno Crisis and Tanglewood and stuff. So it's it's a really interesting interview because we talk about kind of like setting up this console and, and what, what what were the problems when you were starting and how they've kind of fixed it up they've got some you know lots of retro influence in there and kind of what they wanted to aim to do because it is originally it was a bit like a Lynx mixed with a game gear mixed with yeah. a mega drive and all <laughs> kinds of different consoles really yeah, we kind of get their history in, in terms of, you know, systems that did influence them. I mean, the Lynx, you know, as we talk to Andrew in particular, he was a big Lynx fan back in the day. And I know Joe and I, we both got Atari Lynx, Lynxes, Lynx Eye. Um, and they're, uh, you know, they, they were, even though they weren't obviously as popular as a Game Boy. As a kid, that was always the most impressive. I mean, up there with the Game Gear as well, just having full colour graphics, even though you got about 20 minutes of battery out of them. They were great systems back then. Yeah, Man. now the battery power is really good. And uh, mm. they've concentrated on the D-pad a lot. So the D-pad's kind of like a Sega Saturn as well, which is <laughs> interesting as well. A proper mashup console, isn't it? Yes, it's going to be interesting just to find out, you know, what kind of goes into making a decent retro console in 2021. Because I mean, we've all had those, you know, your mum probably got you one for Christmas at some point, like a, a cheap little emulation box, and then you load it up on the... The audio is like, you know, half the speed it should be and the I, screen tearing. And I literally have four of them. Uh, yep. in my, in, and, you know, and you know what? Fair enough. People think about it. Like I've got like four in my cupboard and two of them were from my mum, one from my sister and one from like work when it was my 30th birthday. And it's nice that people are like, oh, chosen to retro games. It's actually my birthday in a couple of days. And my mum was like, what do you want? And I was like, just give me money. I'm going to go retro shopping myself. Like, <laughs> Don't buy me anything. Just like, I know that sounds really ungrateful, but I'm just like, just give me like £30 because I've got like four of them now and I've not got the heart to sell them or anything like that. So Yeah, so it's more of a job than you're thinking, actually getting that emulation spot yeah. on and getting these classic games running on a on this platform, you know, with a decent experience as well, particularly for those of us, I mean, they're aiming at a market that's going to go out and buy physical games. So obviously, I mean, they kind of compare in here, you know, the those other systems are kind of like, you know, the Netflix of gaming. They're more like the vinyl, you know, like a proper mm. collector's experience. So, um, yeah, an interesting chat. We're going to be joined by the guys from Evercade, all about making modern retro consoles. They're going to be on the show in around 20 minutes from now. Now, of course, we keep you up to date with all the big gaming headlines in the world of retro from the last seven days. And another story that dropped just as we were recording last week's show, and we did mention it, that Sega have announced a new Virtua Fighter game. Kind of. Kind of. Yeah, so literally, uh, what were we talking about? We were talking about Sonic or something, weren't we? And I was just like, this keeps happening to us. And funny enough, we're going to talk about Sonic again shortly. But yeah, literally, as I refreshed like my Facebook while we were were recording last week, Virtual Fighter 5. So I've I've had to dig deep with this one. This is all part of Sega's 60th anniversary this year, which is really cool. And at the point of recording this, Virtual Virtual Fighter 5 Ultimate Showdown has gone live on PS Plus from yesterday, which is June the 1st. And then you found out that the arcade port of it, so arcade cabinets of it for Japan, are coming out today on June yeah. the 2nd at the point of recording this, which is really cool. So I, I at first thought this was a completely new Virtual Fighter, but as it turns out, Virtual Fighter 5 
actually came out in 2006 for like the PS3 and Xbox 360. Yeah, then in, I've got it actually. Next you've week. got it. There you go. <laughs> v- v- Virtua Fighter. Virtua Fighter. <laughs> yeah, yeah v- we do Virtua get comments on, on YouTube. <laughs> then there was a, another re-release of it, which I think was called Virtua Fighter 5 Showdown in like 2000. Was that the arcade one? Yeah, because we had an arcade cabinet at my work yeah. for that one, and no one got any work done for about three months <laughs> when we had that in the office. And now there's Ultimate Showdown, which is, you know, the, new, the latest version, which essentially is a re-release of number five with nicer graphics, you know, it's all nice in HD, using original artists for the soundtrack, but they've remade and remixed, completely, you know, remade uh, the soundtrack, um, which they, you know, the producer of the game is saying he thinks reflects you know the game better you know the, the soundtrack better apparently but what's what what kind of caught my eye you know we're kind of talking about a newer game here was there is a legendary pack dlc for it which is 7.99 i believe the main game is free on ps plus if you remember ps plus but for 7.99 you can download the legendary pack which lets you essentially play the new game with a virtual i was gonna say it wrong again virtual fighter one skin it's, it's... <laughs> so the original blocky graphics and everything it's interesting because my memories of uh, when when v- Virtua Fighter came out, it was like that that legendary pack is exactly what it kind of looked like. It, yeah. it was not obviously in as high resolution, but that was yeah. like Sega at that point. They were they were two D kings, and yeah, no one really thought they could do three D that well until this came out. And you know, it was a bit floaty. Yeah, it was like very. It was, yeah, very. <laughs> it, it was the first one that used the AM2 chipset as well. Yeah, and that kind of blew them into that 3D world, and and you know really impressed people. I remember that was like, oh, okay, Sega can do kind of futuristic stuff because it was it was a bit 2D. It, you know, it was early. It was like '93 or something as well, wasn't it? Like '93, '94, and '90, yeah, '92 was Virtua Racing. Yeah, yeah, and then a Virtue Fighter and Daytona, if you remember that as well. Yeah, yeah, man. So yeah, and you get, you know, okay, I don't want to sit here. We're not being paid, you know, by Sega or anything like that. Seven ninety nine, <laughs> you know, okay, DLC seven ninety nine. It'd be nice if it was free with the game, but the game seems to be free anyway. But yeah, all thirty eight characters with the polygon, with the polygonal version, uh, which is really cool. Um, and then you get like nineteen extra costumes and all different stages and stuff like that. So it's nice. I wouldn't say. It's their biggest IP for their 60th, 60th anniversary, but they've been doing a lot of things over this kind of last year, haven't they, to celebrate the 60th anniversary? Yeah, and I think it's cool that they've kind of given fans that mode to yeah. play it with the original graphics. And like Ravi said, I mean, I've got memories of going into my local arcade and seeing, I still remember it was, you know, a really bright white arcade cabinet. Mm. Um, and that, you know, stood out in itself because most of the other ones are like, you know, dark colours. And you had those graphics on there. And, yeah, now they look ridiculous. You know, the, the, the polygonal fighters and, you know, they've got square hands and everything. And But seeing something that was three-dimensional, yeah. I'd never seen a fighting game like that. I mean, I still would have picked Mortal Kombat any day over playing Virtua Fighter in the arcade, if I'm honest. But even later on, I remember, you know, when that came out on the, the 32X, it was kind of a big selling point for that too. And I know they brought it out on the Sega Saturn when that was released. But I remember by that stage, people saying, look, by 95, 96, the graphics looked a bit dated. Yeah. Um, so I, I've got to remember, didn't like Sega kind of reboot that for the, the Saturn and send out free copies to everyone because yeah, they thought remember they could the do exact, better. the exact story, but it's, it's called like Remix or something like that. But yeah, you, f- you yeah. think if you could prove you had a copy of it or you had a copy of the Sega Saturn that came with it, you could claim a free copy of it with like updated graphics and physics and stuff like that. 
I'm not too too sure, but yeah, you are right. It's because it was a dated game by kind of like 95. But yeah, man, it's cool. Like I say, it's for me, it's not not Sega's biggest IP personally, but I, you know, it's big in Japan. They're bringing it out as a physical cabinet as well, which is really cool because I know actual arcades are still really big in Japan and stuff. But yeah, it's it's cool. They've got all the players that are playable because I I remember the uh, old man, the drunken, drunken kung fu fighting style that was that was in there as well that was that was yeah it was it was floaty but add add drunken kung fu style as well <laughs> it's like god mega floaty get, get drunk and then play as him <laughs> yeah i have to try and get my uh office to get another arcade cabinet in now it's been re-released why, why did you your office even have one <laughs> It was some promotional thing like Sega because I worked in Leicester Square in London then. Okay. And they came in and they said, look, you know, it's a big like media building I worked in. They give us like two or three of them in the office just so we talk about it on the radio and the TV and things, I think. Yeah. Might not do it now that I work in a different place. I'm literally the only person in there all day at the moment because (laughs) of COVID. So uh, it might be a big ask, but, you know, worth a shot (laughs) if you're listening, Sega. Um, But yeah, really cool, I think. And it's interesting to see that Sega are kind of giving all of these previous titles you know for their 60th anniversary a bit of love isn't it and um updating yeah, them so i look forward to they're seeing their best franchises next. they're their best assets they they i'm glad that they're focusing on them and actually you see i don't you, you see know. i don't feel like it's their best like asset but at the same time like I, i'm probably wrong do you know what i'm like there's probably people screaming at me now going you know he's completely wrong he's completely wrong he's just obsessed with sonic <laughs> like, so it probably is it probably is like their second biggest ip to be perfectly Mate, honest nothing but. can beat virtua tennis for me yeah i mean you know new golden axe would be amazing which you know we've heard rumors yeah. about for a while and you think that's kind of got to happen shinobi it'd be great to see that kind of getting a bit of a, a reboot as well fantasy star alex kid daytona it'd be great to get yeah, a new daytona he's, he's game as them well. all off now like Sega Rally. I mean, I know they're already on Streets of Rage 4, but Streets of Rage 5? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, Sega, the gift that keeps on giving at the moment. So we'll uh, look forward to seeing what the rest of 2021 brings. Now, this is an interesting game. Um, Daymare 1994, another horror game. Yeah, we we'll just call us the bloody modern hour right now. We're talking about all these modern retro games. I guess that's the theme of the episode. Um, yeah. So I, I wanted to talk about this. So Daymare 1998 came out about two or three years ago now for the PS4. We talked about that, didn't we? I remember. We did, we did talk about it and we spoke about it, I believe, on the After Hours. Not that long ago, I mentioned it. Um, Remind us what that was then for people who didn't hear it. So, so essentially, Daymare 1998 was a... Um, a third-person survival horror game, massively, massively, massively inspired by Resident Evil, by, like, Resident Evil 4, essentially. That sort of gameplay, you know, the over-the-shoulder, you know, popping zombie headshots and stuff. And the fact that it's even called Daymare 1998 and it's set in a city that's had a zombie outbreak and essentially, you you know, you're playing as different survivors trying to get out, you know, playing through the story, unlocking the truth behind the virus and all that kind of stuff. And... It's very Resident Evil. You have puzzles, you have zombies, you have mutants, you know. Um, And essentially the project started out um, by a company called, um, an Italian company called Leonardo Interactive. And essentially uh, it was a couple of guys and they were actually making a Resident Evil 2 remake in like 2015, um, 2014, 2015, themselves, a fan remake on the Unreal Engine. And essentially Capcom kind of reached out to them and said, guys, look, you know, you're going to have to stop because we're actually remaking Resident Evil 2 ourselves. So, you know, they got the whole season desist thing. But Capcom were really cool about this. They invited them to the studio to show them 
what they were working on to show them the Resident Evil 2 that they were making, the remake, and pretty much help them then go on to make Daymare, which I thought was awesome. Because, you know, Nintendo, they're always like slapping these lawsuits and stuff at people. But Capcom turned around and says, you know what, this is really cool. Stop it because we are re-releasing Resident Evil 2. But come on down, see what we're making. Here's a few tips and go turn it into your own game. And that's what they did. They turned it into Dayman 98. And it it was a Kickstarter. It was successful. It's a good game. If you're into survival horror, I recommend it. It's it's rough around the edges. It is a bit clunky. It's it's definitely an indie game. But I'm pleased to see that they've done well enough to make a sequel, well, a prequel to it, called Dayman 1994 Sandcastle, which got a, a release trailer this week. And it's going to be coming out. It just says 2022 at the moment. Um, but very much more of the same, you know, very, very Resident Evil influenced um, survival horror with that very nice looking PS2 kind of graphics, kind of, you know, very similar looking to, to Resident Evil 4 once again. But this one seems a little bit kind of Dead Space influenced as well. There's kind of like that necromorph. The zombies have got like the, you know, the, the sharp kind of tentacle arms and stuff like that from the trailer, which is really cool. But more of the same, which I'm happy with if you like old school survival horror then it's a great little project to kind of back. So I'm excited for it. You can't get enough Resident Evil anyway. I can't get I can't get enough Resident Evil. I've just completed Resident Evil Village for like the fourth time in a row, you know, and then when people <laughs> wow. are, are banging out, you know, kind of Resident Evil clones, I'm all over it, especially when they're like 20 quid new, uh, you know, because that's how much Dayman 98 was. So, you know, I'll be picking this one up next year as well. <laughs> I think it is very cool as well that a company would actually look at a fan project and like you said, so many of them just kill them off. Don't mm. they? The fact that they actually supported this. Yeah. That's the way to do it, isn't it? And that's yeah. the way to get support and, and, from gamers. And you wouldn't expect that from like Capcom. Like you'd think, mm. oh, they're just one of these massive compute, you know, massive game developers kind of thing. One of the biggest ones. You would have thought they'd just shut it down. But no, you know, you know, it, it feels very like, you know, put their arm around their shoulder and go, Come on, come and have a look. This do your thing, but don't don't do it. don't call it Resident Evil. Call it your own thing, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So nice work, Capcom. So we'll uh, put a link to the trailer and the story if you want to uh, check that out when it's available in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now we're going to be talking all about, of course, um, new retro systems with the guys from Evercade in a few minutes' time. But um, that's not the only one on the market. Plenty more coming out. I mean, Analog Pocket. Everyone's been talking about that. But also. <laughs> This is uh, not the catchiest title ever, I'll admit. The Abenic Retro Game 351V. This looks like a pocket Game Boy. Yeah, so people have been waiting for the uh, Analog Pocket. And the Analog Pocket really is like the ultimate Game Boy. You know, it's designed to run all those titles and run them natively and stuff. This is a bit different. Um, Abenic do like retro gaming consoles that you can play all different systems on, like PSPs, uh, you know, N64s. And they're not amazingly good with naming consoles. We've covered before their RG350P. Why you point that on your Christmas list? Let's Google what it is again. Hang on. What is it again? What is it again? We've had a lot of listeners that kind of enjoy these consoles because they're, they're, they're pretty good value. Like the... Um, RG350 you can get for like 60 quid and it's a nice little form factor it kind of looks like a a little DS or something or or kind of like an Evercade as well actually but um, this is in a Game Boy form factor and it's got like a little bit higher resolution a nice screen it's interesting you know I'm reading this review here at the moment and uh, it's a review on Gizmondo and the guy's kind of complaining oh well the position of the the fun pad's a bit weird. 
and stuff. And uh, I thought it was at- interesting that it actually has an analog stick on it. It's like yeah. a Game Boy with an analog stick. It's weird. Like it's, it's cool. It's like the Game Boy form, form factor, but you yeah. need to be able to play other stuff on it. So they've added yeah. shoulder pad buttons in it. And you know what? I think that's pack. the most interesting thing about it is it's got that Game Boy Pocket form factor, like you say, but the shoulder buttons are halfway down the back of the console rather than at the top. So yeah, it's like apparently, it's got a big bum or something. Yeah, it's got like a big bum. Yeah, that's a great way to describe it. It's got a big bum with an L1, L2, R1 and R2 buttons on it. But I thought that was really interesting because I've not seen that before. Yeah, it might be. Yeah, I, I imagine more comfortable to hold than trying to wrap your fingers around the top of a Game yeah. Boy kind of form factor. And it yeah, means yeah. it's got more battery life in there as well. So it's it's a hundred dollars at the moment, and uh, it comes in wood grain as well. So a LDR <laughs> would be happy with that. There's a wood grain option. <laughs> These are really cool, but it just does feel a little bit like there is one every single kind of month, every other month, and it's it just feels. I'm going to say it, I'm going to be a bit negative, I don't like to be negative, but it just feels a little bit like I can't keep buying these things. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> you know. I know you, it, it, it is a saturated market, I know yeah. what you mean. Um, and whenever we go to retro events, you know, you remember those days, yeah. um, we'd always see, you know, in the bar afterwards, it'd always be a guy who had one and a guy who had another one. About well, what, which one's that then? Because, you know, you hear about so many of them. Mm. And yeah, I mean, you're trying to get your head around so many different products on the market that are kind of doing a similar kind of thing. Um, like you said, I think the thing that really sets this one apart is having those kind of extra buttons on there. Yeah. Which... Interestingly, though, I mean, they're saying here that the um, the CPU in there is good enough to play, you know, Game Boy, Game Boy Advance, Mega Drive, Super Nintendo games. It doesn't work that well with, like, you know, Dreamcast or N64. I think that's so, that's good because you, you get so many, I'm going a little bit off topic here, but you get so many, like, Pandora's boxes and, you know, these yeah. MAME cabinets and stuff, and they have, like, the Dreamcast and N64 and PS1 emulation on them, and they go, oh, yeah, it comes with, like, 10,000 games built in, you know, go on your N64, and they just don't work. They just... They just either they literally don't load up or they just, you know, they're terrible, terrible quality, terrible emulation. So it's nice when a company comes along and just says, you know, it doesn't run them. I, and, this yeah. is this is for play your Super Nintendo ROMs on it, play your Mega Drive ROMs on it, play your Game Boy ROMs on it. Like I do I, like that honesty. I haven't looked into this enough, but um, it looks like there's not much difference between the cheaper um, RG350 uh, maybe mm. our listeners can let us know. Maybe the the screen looks a bit better. Maybe it's got a bit of better battery life and stuff. But the other one's like fifty six quid, and this is about a hundred dollars, which is probably if I, I was going to have 70 one of them, I, I, if I was going to have one of them, I would have the newer one. Let me. So the newer one is called the the RG three five one V. I would have that one just simply because of it does look more comfortable because of the one V. <laughs> yeah, because of the one V, that's why I want it. No, because it just it genuinely does does look nicer. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's a nice device, definitely. Yeah. For that price, it's it's not bad at all. You know, I, I I think I need to get my hands on one and actually play one to kind of know what, what you it's can tell. Us, maybe like. that's something we could do for the after hours. Yeah, yeah. You know what though? Yeah. I've I've got to say, looking at this, that analog thumbstick doesn't look the most comfortable placement on the uh on the bottom well, left corner of the device well, it's interesting that it's got one because it's obviously they're saying no dreamcast no n64 yeah that's what i was so, wondering yeah like why, why it needed one maybe if, some you know, people you know maybe for some arcade games in there some early arcade emulation maybe you know and apparently ps1 games run okay on okay it, so, so probably some maybe yeah. some ps1 games on there and stuff like that but yeah the, the placement doesn't look the most comfortable with it it does look a little bit afterthought kind of thing and and they're kind of complaining as well because they're saying um you know it's it's, it's 16 by 9 
but I think mm. like you know if 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 you're getting something like this price, uh, the analog pocket is not going to be this price. It will be a lot more expensive. Yeah, and uh, you know, and that will be a a proper Game Boy uh, kind of one. But this is trying to do something different, you know. And again, I mean, I'm looking at the comments here on the the article on Gizmondo that I'll put in our show notes, and there are you know the top comments straight away is someone saying, "Oh, I could just play these games on my Android phone and carry a Bluetooth controller in my bag," and which is not the same experience as having something that feels like a Game Boy and having it all built in for me. Yeah, yeah, I've, I know a lot of people, uh, especially on Discord, that absolutely love these devices. Yeah, I do think, you know, the ones I've played at shows and stuff, they do feel just like, you know, like a, a great Game Boy, you know, how you wish they were when you were a kid or like, you know, an amazing Atari Lynx with a nice screen and everything. So that is one thing that I think, obviously having all the games as ROMs on there is really convenient. Not having to carry all cartridges around and uh, <laughs> probably shouldn't say it, but not having to buy all the games is quite nice. Um, but also having, you know, the leaps and bounds in not only battery technology, but screen technology as well. They just look so much better than the the systems we had as a kid. I know you'll be excited about this, Joe. One of your all-time favourite movies has now been restored, and you get 20 minutes of extra Super Mario Brothers movie. Can I just say, I think about five years ago, we were talking about video game movies, and I says, I like the Mario Brothers film, and now it's my favourite film of all time. So, yeah, funny enough, I think the last time we spoke about the Super Mario Brothers film was in 2019 when somebody found the footage on an old VHS tape of the extended adult cut, essentially. It's called the adult version of the film. Um, that sounds wrong. Yeah, I know. <laughs> there's a sexy scene in it, apparently. Where oh, is there? Club wearing Ooh. revealing outfits. Revealing stuff. outfits. Oh, yeah. and it's the big bird with her boobies out, I believe. Okay. There we go. Spoiler alert. Um, but Joe's watched it. Yeah, I haven't watched it. I haven't. I haven't. I, I've, I, it was me who found it, really. <laughs> yeah, they found the VHS at Joe's house. They found it in my house. It. But, <laughs> so, so the original version was 104 minutes, and Internet Archive have restored it. They've restored the quality, restored the scenes, um, and they've made it 125 minutes long, so just over 20 minutes longer. From what I've seen, it's mostly extended versions of the scenes with a few more words of dialogue and stuff like that. For me, it doesn't look like I have to go out out there and see it. I don't love the film enough to be like, oh my God, I need to see this now with 20 extra minutes. You know, it's not like Blade Runner. (laughs) You know, when the new Blade Runner cuts come out and there's an extra four minutes and everybody clocks to see it. But it's interesting that, you know, a group of people have gone through the effort to restore it and it does look good. And you've already watched the film probably about five times this week anyway. <laughs> no, I haven't. I've got it saved on Amazon to watch by the looks of things. Um, <laughs> it is on Amazon Prime, isn't it? It is, it is on Amazon Prime. It's, 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 it's on archive.org as well. This one is for free. And it's okay. right. pretty amazing. Like, I don't know how long that'll be on with Nintendo and everything. But um, <laughs> it's amazing when they do these restorations and kind of upscaling of, you know, old VHS footage and then uh, make it really high quality. And it says that uh, it's actually got, like, um, a dubbed version uh, in honour of the husband and wife director team as well. So it's like 125 minutes. Uh, yeah. Extra scenes. So so essentially, you know, from the breakdown, just to kind of, you know, for those who don't want to go watch it, essentially there's a subplot about a mafia plumbing <laughs> company who are kind of after Luigi and Mario in the real world. There's a scene where Dennis Hopper, you know, the King Cooper, uh, kills somebody with the de-evolving gun and turns somebody into slime. And they took that out because they didn't want to show anybody dying in the film. And then also 
the club, the big burr in the club, uh, who's got a more revealing outfit, I believe. And then some of the scenes are just a couple of seconds long, longer um, and a couple of extra bits of dialogue. But yeah, that's that's the main thing. They cut somebody getting killed and they cut the mafia bit, <laughs> which which does actually sound quite interesting. Like, actually, do, do I want to watch that now? That there's a, there's a subplot about the mafia being after them as well. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> And you can see why these kind of things were taken out. Because, I mean, it was mainly kids that went to yeah. see the film with their, their parents <laughs> back in the day. What's so. the mafia, Daddy? <laughs> <laughs> Tony yeah, Soprano. So, uh, yeah, interesting to see. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, there's bound to be a new Super Mario movie at some point. So, um, you know, worth seeing the first one um, before you check out the new one that will undoubtedly be better. Um, probably not in Joe's opinion, but um, for everybody else. <laughs> Now, what's the uh, the Pico computer? We do talk about Pico quite a lot. This is a new development then, an article on a Hackaday. Um, this is the world's first RP2040 QWERTY computer. This thing looks tiny. <laughs> this is insanely small. It's, um, it's the size of a credit card, and it's got a full QWERTY keyboard on there. So <laughs> what you could do is um, you could actually run emulation on this. So you can run like BBC B on this as well and uh you know it's it's running with a raspberry pi in there um it's 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 not got much circuitry required um it, it's powered by usb-c as well and uh it's just a a tiny little device you know i've seen it everywhere because uh people are printing the pcbs and stuff and uh yeah it's really cheap as well you can it's got an ips display but that display is <laughs> you're not really gonna be able to see much on there it's monochrome yeah yeah and it's uh running uh arduino core as well you can have like a usb on there as well um ethernet connections with lan as well so it's like this tiny tiny credit card computer that you could basically to take around hack you can add different things onto it and uh you know it's got your gpio port up at the top there as well so i'm sure we're going to see people doing tons of things with these and he's just going to go into his wallet to pay for something and be like oh no i took a credit card out from my pico computer <laughs> it's my pico computer let me just uh, program a credit card on that. yeah <laughs> you know i just imagine ravi going up to an atm like you know john connor from terminator that's, that's you know, exactly what, I what it is yeah it's it, it to me, it just looks cool. And just the idea that you've got a full QWERTY keyboard on there as well. You know, I don't like on-screen com- keyboards and stuff. Like having one that you can actually tap and play on and, and then run basic emulators on as well, um, wh- which is really cool. You know, you could have you could be playing Elite on this. You know? I mean, for people who haven't seen the pictures, I'll, put, I'll link the article up as well. Really, this thing is the size of a Raspberry Pi. And the keys, I mean, it's not a full-size keyboard on here. These are tiny little, like, micro-switches, aren't they? I imagine you've got to tap them with your little finger. And then you've got this um, small, like, a postage stamp display in monochrome in the uh, the top right of the unit here as well. It does look like a great little hacker's device, though. The only thing I'm wondering is, because it's just a Raspberry Pi, is it like a battery pack for this thing then? Or do you have I, to use I think it you have to separately, separately power it by a USB yeah. um, uh, C or micro USB. But uh, yeah, I don't think there's any room for a battery in there <laughs> unless it's a, like a watch battery and that's not going to be able to do anything but keep the time, really. Uh, yeah, it, well, You it, could use like a, a, a phone bank, you know, to, that charges your phone, I guess, with it. That probably would. It, it just looks impressive. And I've seen like the PCBs are available on a PCB way and stuff. And like, you know, 
it's, it's, it's kind of been all over the internet. On the nerdy sites that I go on, this little Pico computer has been popping up. So if you check that out, and I think we're just going to see tons of projects coming out from this. And uh, Pico computers built into things and maybe speeding up things or doing like side processes of stuff or built into ATMs, who knows. Now, just before we get into our chat with the guys from Evercade, let's take a moment to give a huge thank you to a very big supporter of the Retro Out podcast who've supported us for a good few years now, actually, and we love them. And this is our friends at Beer 52. Now, it is a lovely warm day here in the UK today. How lovely would it be? When you finish, Joe, just to get out in the garden, crack a beer in the sunshine. How about now <laughs> there we go <laughs> any excuse just to drink during the show mm-hmm. well, this we is our amazing friends at beer 52 who are the world's biggest beer club with over 170,000 active members now uh, we've actually got a box of beer 52 nearby um you're obviously already getting stuck into yeah, yours joe I've- the experience of getting one of these is amazing though isn't it yeah man i mean i've only got a couple left but I have been, you know, while the weather's been really nice and stuff like that, it is really nice just to go to your fridge. And they're just there. And they're picked for me. You know, sometimes you go to like Asda or whatever and you go down the aisle, it's just so much to choose from. So it is really nice when they just send them to you and you're just like, these just look delicious. So I've only, I've only got three left. I've just cracked open a Dexter salted caramel. Now, this is a milk stout. And I thought, oh, that sounds a little bit puddingy but they're actually a lot more refreshing than you think they are. Um, I've also got the raspberry pie, raspberry oat milkshake, uh, which we mentioned last week, which I'm really, really looking forward to. Um, and I've got an Eternal Waves Northern Monk IPA left as well. And these are really, really delicious. And you get a free snack, which is awesome. And you get their magazine. You do Met get their magazine, magazine that tells as well. you all about making beer and, you know, different... I think the current edition we've got is the Yorkshire edition. Yep. So they're kind of talking about, you know, the breweries in Yorkshire and stuff. It's really interesting. And I think, yeah, the main thing about Beer 52 is it encourages you to try things that you normally wouldn't try. Yeah, um, And like you said, that raspberry pie one as well, which uh, I posted that in our Discord and people are like, hang on, there's a, there's a raspberry pie beer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I, it's like the, computer, the retro fans it? excited that does a raspberry <laughs> pie beer. Absolutely. And, and this is the thing, I would never go for a stout or a milkshake beer mm. or anything like that. So when they kind of came in the post, I was a bit like, okay, this is interesting. This is a bit like, hmm, right. You know, am, am I going to enjoy these? But they're really nice. And like I say, it's, it's just it's just cool having it kind of chosen for you. And it's just there in the fridge, ready after a hard day's work or a hard day doing your podcast. <laughs> so we want you to get involved and get free eight craft beers from Beer 52. That is a free case of eight craft beers delivered to you. All you have to cover is a postage cost of £5.95 and us and Beer 52 will take care of the rest. So you need to nip onto this website right now, beer52.com, that's beer52.com slash retro, and you will get a case of eight craft beers, the magazine, the snack. And the good thing about Beer 52 is you can pause or cancel at any time. There's no commitment. And each month they will send you a case with a different theme and you can customize it as well so you know if you don't like dark beer and a ravi you're more into light beers aren't you oh yeah and i i love the german beers that they did as well uh you know yeah. I, i'm really into like wheat beer and uh those kind of pilsners as well so there's a choice for everyone really yeah, so all we want you to do is nip onto this site right now. And of course, it goes without saying, you'll be really helping out the podcast by taking advantage of these great offers that we get you from our sponsors. Head to beer52.com slash retro to get eight craft beers on us. And a big thank you to our friends at Beer 52. 
Now, of course, at the moment, where there are things gradually starting to reopen around the world. I mean, you know, you guys have been there. Uh, I still haven't made it into town to do any retro gaming shopping yet, but I'm hoping this Friday is going to be the first time. We've bought, we've bought them all, Joe. Done. We've bought them all. We've bought them all, mate. You're going to clean out all our local game shops. Uh, but we have been showing some love to retro gaming shops all around the world over the last few weeks with your help as well. So if you've got a retro gaming shop that you go to to buy your retro games, and we are talking shops that exist right now, aren't we? Because we've had some people that are like, I used to go to Future Zone back in 1992. That is not what we mean. We mean we want to show love to shops that are open now, give them a bit of free advertising on the podcast and big up how incredible they are. And hopefully we can help them out because, I mean, they've all been through a tough time all around the world over the last year. Yeah, please contact us and tweet us about this or email us on the contact form on the website because... You know, we want these video game shops to continue and we want kids to be able to go to video game shops, not just sit and redeem codes for the whole of their life, you know, <laughs> get some actual physicality. And uh, this week we've been contacted by Gamer Geek Dragon on Twitter, who says here in North Virginia, we have E-Starland and it's an amazing shop that's been around for 30 years Yeah, it's been around that long. Retro gaming and modern, and they do retro games and repairs too. So this shop has been running since 1991. Since before these were retro. Yeah, Yeah. before these were all retro, yeah. (laughs) My main issue with this shop is that it's not here in the UK and I can't go visit it. Um, Because this looks awesome, man. This shop looks huge. They've got everything. But what I really like is they've got an arcade corner. They've got X-Men the Arcade Machine, the four-player one. They've got Super Street Fighter 2 Turbo, Captain America and the Avengers, and a couple of pinball games, Simpsons Pinball and uh, Star Wars Pinball, oh, wow. just set up for people to come and play. I mean, I don't know if they're for sale. Um, you know, they they could well be, but this game shop looks awesome, man. I, I, you know, maybe I need to uh, convince my wife that next year when we go on holiday, we go to, West, what did you say, was it West Virginia? Uh, North Virginia. North Virginia. Um, And she'll be like, oh, yeah, it's really lovely here. And I'll be like, yeah, there's a game shop I'll see in two days. Yeah, I think everything's big in America, but this Mm. just looks absolutely epic. Like, the one thing that is just making me completely drool is they've got a selection at the top of boxed consoles. Mm. And Mm. there they've got a Virtual Boy. They've got a Jaguar, you know, 32X. Like, oh, oh man, this, this place looks wicked. And... I'm sure these photos aren't doing justice for it as well. They seem to have some rare Sega Saturn titles as well. It does look amazing. It kind of reminds me, particularly the, you know, you walk into the shop by the looks of it and they've got the uh, the glass cabinets there at the counter with a load of games in. Behind it, wall, it's pretty much floor-to-ceiling mm-hmm. games on shelves all the way behind the counter. Then in the middle of it, it kind of reminds me of um, when you used to go to Blockbuster and there's all them shelves in the middle with, you know, kind of a um, head height, and you can look down the, the games that are there on all different systems. So it looks like they've packed a lot into this space. Yeah, and yeah. they've got a lot of systems that they cover as well. So, like, you know, Freedio, CDI, Channel F as well, which we hardly get over here. So, so you name it, they seem yeah. to sell it. You know, there's, like, a good, mm. like, 40 consoles listed on, on, on the website as well by the looks of things, so... Just Which imagine having that in your town as a constant, being able to go there for 30 years. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I actually said to my wife today, we were driving along, and I said, you know, Nottingham, you know what it needs? It needs a retro game shop. And she goes, well, you open one. And I was like, oh, no, I'm not taking the risk. <laughs> <laughs> Sell your collection, Joe. We'll just buy yeah, it. I would just buy it all and try and yeah. keep it, wouldn't I? Joe, you've made yourself bankrupt in a week. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, she'll soon regret saying you, that. You wouldn't yeah, be exactly. able to give them away. Uh, yeah. like, no, this is my baby. <laughs> 
Yes, I mean, this place looks amazing, particularly the fact that they've been around since these systems were modern. I imagine they've got a load of knowledge about them as yeah. well, you know, having dealt with them for 30 years and they do, um, you know, repairs and mods as well. So if you want to check them out, um, their website is eStarland.com and they're there in uh, Northern Virginia. So uh, a big thank you for getting in touch with that. And of course, we'll link that up in our show notes as well. Now, just quickly, time to uh, give a big thank you to our amazing patrons, the people who keep the Retro Hour podcast coming week in, week out, making sure that we can get the show out every Friday and bring you guests every single week. And um, we can't stress enough just how incredible and, you know, how needed your support is. Um, and of course, we do have a load of perks as well if you want to back us on Patreon. Uh, we've had a few new patrons over the last week. Of course, we'll give you a shout in a moment. But. What do patrons get, Ravi, for backing us? Oh, patrons, patrons get a lot of love, but they also get a lot of perks. Um, we've got the private Discord channel that they can chat in and they can get episodes early as well. But episodes ad-free. You can also get a T-shirt, um, the Retro Hour After Hours as well. So a whole additional podcast, which is just fantastic as we kind of go behind the scenes but it's not us talking about all our equipment and stuff it's us talking about memories and old retro gaming it's really good fun and then we've got the patrons meetup as well which is just fabulous because we all get on the webcam we all chat about anything really that comes up and you know it's a huge knowledge base the amount of kind of people there that are sharing information and going oh yeah this is how you fix that and fix that um it's kind of like a retro repair session sometimes and now that we're into June, I mean, there will be one coming up in the next couple of weeks. I will put a link in our Patreon. Um, it's there. You can join in, chat to us. I mean, you know, j- just a group of guys for a couple of hours on a weekend. We hang out, chat about all things retro and geeky and nerdy. Or you can just watch if you want. Some people just come along and, uh, you know, have it on while they're doing work. So it'd be great to see you there. And, of course, the main reason that you're doing it is just to support the Retro Hour podcast. So a massive thank you to our new supporters, Simon Wood. Thank, Lord. Simon Barnes. Charlie Needham and Fabrice Deville, who all backed us on Patreon. Your support is hugely appreciated. And if you'd like to do the same, you'll find it at theretrohour.com. And it is Joe's birthday coming up. If you'd like to give Joe a little present, <laughs> here's something you could do. Why don't you leave us a review on your podcast client of choice? You'd appreciate that, wouldn't you, Joe? It, it, watch this get some hate now. Like, I hate that, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> the show'd be great he's, if he's Joe was. He's too old now. It. It's been his birthday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, yeah, they, they always do make a big difference. Um, I don't think we've had any new ones for a couple of weeks, but if you, uh, you know, listen on Apple Podcasts or any other platform, leave us a little review on there. It helps get the show in front of new people, helps us climb up the chart. Honestly, it'll take you a couple of minutes. Um, so any reviews, you know, three stars or above are always appreciated. Um, we'd, we'd love to see that as well if you want to, another way to support the show. Right, then next we are going to get into talking about all about making modern retro consoles with the guys from Evercade. You're listening to the Retro Owl Podcast, and it is time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Now, on the show, often we look back at, you know, companies from the past and talk about things that happened in the early days of video games. Today, a little bit different because we're going to be focusing on um, a company that's making really cool retro-themed products today and a company that we do talk about a lot on this podcast because we think they're brilliant. Let's welcome on Sean Cleaver and Andrew Byatt from Evercade. Hello, guys. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having us. 
Yeah, great to have you joining us. Now, uh, before we get into the the work that you guys are doing at Evercade, which, you know, everyone I've seen on YouTube and podcasts raves about the projects that you guys work on. Um, Andrew, I know you're the managing director of Evercade, and Sean, you're the marketing manager. It's always nice to find out a bit of our uh, guest geek credentials and kind of, you know, go back to what initially got them into video games. I mean, starting with you, Andrew, do you remember your kind of earliest gaming experience? Where did your interest begin? I had a... Um an Amstrad PC-1512, I remember. And that was kind of my first, you know, floppy disks, my first experience. I think I think my first console was a NES. So I'm actually 40 years old. So that, that's kind of, kind of when it started, 1985 onwards. Um, and then I think I went through an Amiga phase. I actually had an Atari Lynx, which features on the Evercade as well. Um, one of my favorite consoles, really. Like a lots of nostalgia for that product. Um, and then on to... The 16-bit stuff and and Mega Drive was my my console. So NES to Mega Drive. So I've been around around the around the uh, around the roads a lot, and it uh, it comes across. Um, I think in our selection of all the games that we do. I remember having an Amstrad as well, and uh, one of those models playing a Missile Command. I think it, I think it couldn't do much. No, I had um, a game called I think it was called Bruce Lee. I don't know if you remember that. That was um, I think it actually was called Bruce Lee, and it was a. It was. I just remember spending hours and hours on that. The Lynx as well. I mean, what an incredible system that was. Again, very underrated. I think. I know you guys are big fans of the Lynx. Yeah, I think. I think with the Lynx, it was one of those things where we had the um, like the high quality. Um, it had a color screen and stuff before. We got Game Boy, and I think I was attracted to all the gadgets and gizmos that it was running. Um, some, you know, doing the first of things, and then obviously, you know, Game Boy kind of had the, the real quality of games, which which took it on and on. But, you know, there were some really, really nice games on the links, which hopefully we've been able to bring back um, and get into people's hands again, because it's kind of one of those systems that, you know, it has lots of fond, fond memories about, but it's kind of gone away a little bit. Yeah, and you don't have to plow through the uh, AA batteries anymore. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> what about you, Sean? What's kind of your background in gaming then? What, what got you into it initially? Well, actually, not too dissimilar, really. We're, we're not that far off in our in our age group, but I went down the Spectrum route as opposed to the, the Amstrad route, uh, after arcades, to be honest, arcades was my first uh, full experience into gaming. You know, going to seaside towns, uh, going on holiday, and just dropping money into things like Outrun. Anything with a steering wheel was was straight up for me, like a must play. Ironically, I've just come back from a weekend away at the coast and just played the the most recent Daytona game. So the, the same still applies, regardless of the twenty five thirty years in between. But yeah, at the time. And then had a Spectrum, so I had a lot of those arcade ports and games that sort of came from those really early arcade ports. Uh, I eventually then upgraded to Sega and sort of went down that way, but um, it was really those old arcade ports that got me into it. And the old programming books that you used to get from WH Smith, if you remember, sort of like the black cover ones where you could like program in your own version of Lunar Lander or a crazy golf game or something like that. So that was really my introduction. Nice and cheap and cheerful, but, you know, very effective. Yeah, and I think, you know, that obviously it shaped an entire generation, didn't it, of, you know, British kids that got into computers, the Spectrum. Oh, yeah, very much so, very much so. I think the, because um, there were so many similarities between that at the time and, you know, when, I mean, when I was a kid at school, we had second, maybe third-hand BBC micros, things mm. like that. And the um, the coding language and everything else was very similar. So, you know, we would be able to to work with them at school, work with these at home. But it did become very clear like late 80s early 90s uh, i had to go away from this into something that was better like i think the master system was actually my first one that i got second or third hand maybe 
but that was the generation you were getting all of these games the rental stores had everything up on the shelves and you knew which way it was going so yeah eventually you joined the rest of the console race and apart from some brief dalliances with pc um i never really looked back I, I, I love that you mentioned the kind of accessories as well for the handheld consoles. Do you think we'll ever see like an Evercade magnifier glass or a, <laughs> a kind of lighting setup? Yeah, it's not one I thought about actually. Yeah, no, no, I think I think that's come up a few times actually. People want some huge extendable thing you stick on the front of it, you know, just to make it look so retro. Yeah, some huge <laughs> kind of monster or like a carry case or something like that. Well, we, we, I mean, I've, I've literally got a Game Gear down by the side of me at the moment, and it's still got the TV tuner in it from, from way back when. So I always look at that kind of thing and think, that'd be interesting to have on the Evergate. <laughs> nice big TV aerial, nice little nod. Yeah, because that doesn't work anymore now, does it, now that analog no. TV's gone? Nope, it doesn't work at all. Not unless you've got yourself a little antenna in your backyard, in which case you're probably doing a lot more things than, than trying to get a Game Gear tuner to work. We've lost so much with uh, with teletext going and stuff like that. I think <laughs> all that nostalgia. Well, Andrew, what's kind of your history in the industry then? Have you kind of got a background in, in the gaming industry? I actually, um, I came from more of a, a licensing direction, actually, because um, obviously a lot of the, lot, all the games on the system are, are licensed, so we have to approach the owners of all the, all the content. And it's a big part of what we do is go out there and find officially licensed uh, games which is a whole story in itself really but um you know my, my background is kind of product development and then i was doing kind of lots of uh licensed electronics previously so i was doing stuff with disney and marvel and all that kind of stuff so ki- lots of kids headphones and various different electrical products and uh, lots of licensing experience from that and then i've come into this business and kind of got into this this area i think as i say m- my history is very much as being a gamer but then you know this is this is doing it for a job which is kind of the dream i suppose and were you also into like product design and kind of the electronic side of it yeah that's that's actually the, what i did as a degree and um kind of went on from there product design and marketing is really where i've been for the last 15 odd years um lots of trips to china lots of time over there spending developing products all the uh technical drawings and and that kind of stuff yeah yeah all that stuff so that's my uh that's my background and Spending a lot of time, you know, with the with the original Evercade handheld, spending a lot of time sitting there in factories. Um, I think we went through about over sort of twelve iterations of the D pad. So sitting there, working on it, making sure that it felt right. You know, that's that's what we've been doing, um, and a lot of that comes from product design background. Well, you know, talking about the company as well behind Evercade, um, Blaze Entertainment, what's kind of the background with the company then and um, how was that formed and what was kind of the mission? So um, Blaze was an, an entity that kind of um, went out of business around 2015, um, who was doing a lot of kind of accessories and other things. And that, that business kind of closed down. The, the the assets were kind of owned by a company called PQ, which is a, a games publisher. And they'd done some distribution for... Um, for various kind of retro products as kind of kind of not not on their core business but on the side and they they'd seen this was really successful so what they've done is is signed uh, some licenses and started to to look into how you know they build that their own products as opposed to distributing other people's products i came into the business at that time about three years ago what i was looking for there was lots of lots of products that they were producing or starting to produce which had kind of a number of built-in games so they'd had 
you know, 20 games or 50 games. And, and they were kind of one and done products, you know, nice products. But really what I wanted to do was something a little bit more, a little bit more interesting for people. So, you know, we could build a community and build, build you know, a growing product as such um, instead of reiterating the same thing over and over again with new hardware. So we split out the company into two uh, or into a new business and because they owned the, the Blaze brand at the time, Blaze has uh, had good distribution, um, you know, uh, a good name in distribution. So, you know, lots of retailers across Europe and globally would know the brand. So we took the brand on really as our name and that all kicked off the Evercade really. So that, that all that development started. The Evercade itself is just just a way of really, uh, as I say, making something that expanded and, and you, you could buy it and then, you know, you'd have another collection each every every month every couple of months there'd be something new to play really so it's, it's that was the kind of passion the idea behind it all um and i think making them into kind of modular products you we get to license individual products all the time i think it's a licensing is quite complicated um in terms of when you have some of these products with like 50 games on they'll have to go out and speak to six different companies and let's say there's five dollars available in licensing um revenue for that product then what you can do is you have to give it out to to all those six different companies and it becomes a bit of a bonfire as to who gets what you know my game's worth more than their game etc so what we what we've been able to do with the, the evercade is we've made the these individual collections which you know they, they earn from um the licensor and then what you can do is do another one and another one and everyone everyone earns a separate amount which is I know, getting a bit technical but um, that's really one of the ideas and we thought what's the perfect way of delivering those collections was was in a cartridge form and kind of bringing back cartridges so um that's what we've done and and these individual collections i think we're up to 26 now yeah so there's 16 currently available uh, to purchase right now at time of recording um there will be 26 by the end of the year well were you guys involved with the uh, game gadget at all because i saw that was a, a like previous blaze entertainment product yeah, no, that was a completely different um, guys really doing that product. So um, I think Game Gadget was around 2014, something like that. I think that was. A, I think they they originally tried to create the iPod of gaming at that point, iPod of retro gaming. Sorry, um, and yeah, I don't think it worked out. Um, and then that product kind of disappeared. Well, what were kind of people's initial reactions when you said you wanted to make a handheld? cartridge console did they kind of think you guys were a bit mad (laughs) yeah that's um that was a really interesting thing i think when we launched the product we were really uh, kind of we we had our instincts on what would work and what wouldn't but you know until you get it into people's hands you never know what what's going to happen i think we sent the the original product out for review to to some kind of influencers and you know it was kind of the acid test and, and when we got it out there i think i sat and watch the I, I don't think I could watch the actual first reviews on my on, with anyone else I had to watch it on my own just to see what um what the reactions were like and um you kind of held your breath and and you know the reactions were good in fact I think one of the first um the first reviews was like is, is it crazy or or genius was the was the title of the review so I think it was uh it's seen as being I wouldn't say genius but certainly uh people don't really consider it crazy anymore um and we've managed to get that product out and, and in the middle of what was going on at the time with the, with the pandemic uh, we're really proud to get it out within I think we had a couple of months delay which was which was or three months delay really from the kind of March time we ended up getting out in June which was was pretty good going at the time 
Yeah, no, the reaction's been fantastic. And I think bringing back cartridges is, is really the critical thing, really, for everybody. They're really enjoying having a physical thing in their hands, having a manual, having that kind of stuff. Um, and also the like curated nature of the collections. I think with, with other devices, you might be confronted with thousands of games, you know, not not legitimate games, but that, you know, this this gives you kind of like, here you go, here's 10 games, here's a manual, I'll tell you all about them, and then you can play them one by one and actually really enjoy them rather than kind of just skipping around and not really, you know, getting into a game perhaps like you do do with this product. Hmm. I'd, I'd agree with that. I think curation is very much the key. I mean, a lot of the devices that sort of been in the market for years where you are playing retro games that are even officially licensed uh, either give you a wealth of games that you know or give you very little games that you know and any number of games that you've never heard of before or are um, adaptations of different things. And you do end up with that overwhelming choice i mean i'm sure when we were all young you would get the kind of um market stall style cartridges that you'd have 25 in one and you'd be like whoa what is this and while you know our collections are all official and licensed we, we got that much smaller number and that curation of making sure not only you're getting something that you know you want to play uh for example if it's a high um high known game like something like a double dragon or or a game of that ilk mixed with some games that are good that you might not have heard of or rental store games that you know that you remember from your memory of oh i used to play that here and there yeah and i think those kind of curations and lists have been one of the key successes for that card the cartridge delivery system it really gives people the ability not to be overwhelmed to that choice not to have that decision paralysis and also not to have to feel oh i need to get x amount of things onto my system in order to make it a worthwhile thing for me you know and also it's um it's supporting the developers as well so you know these knockoff kind of carts that you can get on amazon with every single game on an sd card uh, i'm sure the developers aren't getting anything for a lot of those but um this is actually all official and and done to the official companies yeah, yeah we, no. there, there's the, the kind of ownership of um of the games from the past um but what we've also done with this is we sign a load of, of new games for old systems. Um, you know, there's a, a developers like uh, Megacat Studios who, you know, have been developing NES and, and, and Genesis games, which they were published today, which we've developed in the last few years. And those we've we've made a cartridge of, of those collections, which is which is really fun, really good quality as well. Um, and we're also releasing just in July. There's a, a cartridge called Indie Heroes, which is actually very much like you're saying so these are these are the guys you know kind of not necessarily bedroom developers um but you know they're they're kind of some very small teams who a lot of it's passion projects um and we're, we're getting their product into a physical release and you know otherwise perhaps it would never see a physical release so it's really nice to you know not, you know get those products to market and it might uh it might actually raise the eyebrows of some of some of the big companies that own the assets and think, oh, you know, people are still actually interested in this title or this IP and uh, we might do something with it in the future. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of ironic timing with that because there's been quite a lot of um, a lot of companies and a lot of movement in those kind of circles as to what IP should be brought back and how they sort of use what they have in their back catalogue in a way. I mean, for, I mean, for years, I, I guess there has always been some kind of re-release of certain things, certainly in a digital way. Uh, on more major platforms but the rise of the mini consoles and then of course there's been the rise of now these miniature arcade units that started to come the idea that you could have a one shop 
place effectively with uh, one product where you don't have to go through and spend lots and lots of money on R&D and development to create a product. There's actually somebody that has an existing user base that you just need to pay them to put it on the cartridge. You know, it, it makes certainly Evercade a very valuable proposition uh, for a lot of those licenses as well. So, it, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that there's always going to be something that's that's way out there that somebody remembers and will will want to play again. And everybody, it doesn't matter how much there is the proliferation of the internet and the ability to access these games easily digitally, people always want it in their hands. They always mm. want that kind of physicality because the nostalgia of the game is also tied to the nostalgia of what they remember, having it physically, playing it, putting the cartridge in, blowing the dust off the cartridge and all those, all those <laughs> little quirks that we all grew up with. So it really kind of helps bring that user experience full circle. And I think the, the publishers of these games also agree with that because they remember the experiences when they were making these games and, 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 pu- and publishing them in the first instance. Well, I'm quite interested about the um, design of the console as well. I mean, talk us a bit through the, the specs of the system and kind of what it can do for people that might not have got the hands on one yet. Um, the, the handheld, so obviously we, we've got the handheld, which has been around since um, since June last year. Um, and this year we've got the home console coming out, which uh, we, I guess we can talk about. But in terms of the handheld, it's it's got a 1.2 gigahertz processor um, in it. And it, it runs kind of 8, 16-bit and 32-bit games, various different different formats, um, you know, across a very you know variety of systems so um the system itself the handheld itself has got a 4.3 inch screen which is like a, a psp size has two front-facing speakers um and it, it has battery life of about four hours roughly there's a cartridge slot in the back and that's kind of the key point so uh, that cartridge slot we can you know put any one of these cartridges in and, and off you go it's quite a it's quite a simple real ui experience really um you just you know, plug it in and off you go. You, you've got a set of, of you know, save states, that kind of stuff, uh, normal things people are used to, and you can change the aspect ratio. One of the other key things about the handheld is um, it does have a, a, a HDMI out, so you can plug into the TV. So it's got a, it's got a nice. Uh, if you want to play it on TV, you can. It's actually a single player experience, so people have been using it, um, and, and inside the games themselves on the cartridges, uh, we've still got the two player. Or, or, or more um, in there. So this year, when with the new console, we're kind of opening it up to a multiplayer experience, which is kind of you know, the next thing we're offering. And were there any um, systems that you looked at for inspiration? I mean, like any consoles in the past that you kind of wanted to take elements of when you were designing the system? I, I'm going to say now, I bet Andrew's going to say the links. Well, actually, um, in terms of the D-pad, I think, you know, I don't know what you guys think, but I, I've always been a massive fan of the Saturn and the, the Mega Drive D-pad. Uh, yeah, everyone's got kind of their own preferences here, and it. Um, but we, the D-pad was really important to get right. There's not really that kind of D-pad in in many handhelds. There's not a lot of time spent, I don't think, but in development on on this kind of thing. So we, we did spend a lot of time on that to make sure it felt good. But yeah, that that and then you know the color scheme and stuff is is a bit Famicom and. It's um, it's it's kind of supposed to be kind of modern retro, I guess. So it's meant to feel retro, but have kind of modern touches. It's one of those things where kind of there has always been companies that have a certain look and a certain style, but as time has gone on, the look and style has actually become what the aesthetic is, as opposed to what it is signifying as a brand or anything else. And I think the 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 handheld and certainly the new VS console certainly takes its cue 
aesthetically and design wise from a lot of those kind of areas of nostalgia in that aesthetic and sort of bundles it together in a really nice really neat package and i think it's important that you did pay attention to the d-pad as well because that does like you mentioned then it does seem to be an area that's often overlooked on modern consoles you know now most games are played with analog sticks on modern systems when you try and play like you know a retro game on an xbox 360 springs to mind though that was a horrible d-pad on there but you know the fact that it is more comfortable to play those games that were designed to use a d-pad on like one that feels good on the hand i think it's, it's one of those things as well uh, i think andrew can correct me if i'm wrong here but there's actually quite a lot of legality around uh d-pad design in general um all the way from um the mid 1980s to to even the the xbox and playstation pads of today there are certain things that you you absolutely cannot do because they're owned by people and a lot of people i think spent the last 20 25 years designing pads around how can we make this pad our own while still having the playability that everybody wants to have and you're right everybody's had their own solutions to it and you know, playing, if I remember rightly, the Xbox 360 D-pad was slightly raised at the tip, wasn't it? So yeah. like where you'd have two analog sticks, you'd have like a little ridge around the side. and But the D-pad was there rather than an analog stick like you would have on PlayStation. It sort of felt like you had to reach your thumb over a bit more in order to do stuff with that. But I think, yeah, I mean, inspired by like the, the designs of, of things like the Saturn and, and that era of gaming, like the D-pad that we've got is, sort of seems to be the best one. And you have a look at what pads are used now for retro gamers and the third party pads and the licensed pads. They all look down that angle partly because of the legality, but also partly because this is what gives the best playability to the widest array of, array of games that are available. Well, another important aspect is the cartridges. And uh, how do you go about kind of designing a cartridge system and uh, getting these cartridges and also kind of deciding on the size limitations um in the modern day yeah so the the cartridges is kind of that's what this is all about and i think we're talking about just talking about touch and feel and uh you know that kind of stuff and i think the cartridges are really a big part of that so opening up that case and and getting, you know new car smell kind of thing and, and getting the the manual out it, it what we the whole point of this is really people are going to play these these games in lots of ways but we're trying to take them back to kind of a, a, a time period in their lives, I think. Um, and I think when we design the cartridge, obviously when you're doing a handheld, which is what we were doing initially, um, you, you've got size limitations physically. So you don't want it to be too huge because obviously that's not practical. We looked at a lot of handheld cartridges from the past, found a kind of the right kind of size and feel as, for that. And then, in terms of what what goes on inside, so having uh, a, the right amount of memory in there, so that we can we can support the right number of games. So because they're 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 kind of fifteen pounds per cartridge at the moment, which is kind of I think a, a pretty reasonable price. Um, and you tend to get you know on average I'd say eight to ten games on it on each one. You know, there's there's some considerations there as we get you know things. We've got a collection which has got uh, worms um, on which is got three titles on there it has um uh, one worms armageddon on there as well so that actually is a, is a larger kind of file size game so as we get bigger file sizes as these as these games got newer and newer the file sizes went to, as they went to disc and stuff got a lot larger so what we're doing is you have to have a little consideration as to where, where what the practical price points of those are and whether that makes our price point go up so we're very we're very 
aware of the value we want to offer people. So we're, we're very much concentrating on that. And it, it's been quite interesting because we've had some cartridges, you know, the way we've done it, I suppose, is we've said, right, what do, what are the games on each cartridge almost worth um, to people? So how many we can, we could include? So things like um, Atari 2600, whereas, you know, as a gaming experience, you know, it's, it's very nostalgic, but, you know, people feel like you know, 20 titles on a cartridge was the right amount kind of thing. And then when it comes down to, you know, the newer titles, stuff that's getting into like late nineties and, and things like that, it starts to be, people will kind of accept less titles on there. Um, they see the value of the graphics and all the, all the um, music and everything else on each title. So it's a bit of a mix really. Well, talk us through some of the highlights of the, the titles that are available on the Evercade then. And also how do you go about picking them and getting them licensed? So, yeah, we've got, um, as I say, by the end of the year, 26 cartridges that will be available. There are currently 16 available at the moment. And if you buy an Evercade, you either get one or three, depending on your pack option. So that's always um, going to be an Atari, uh, the first Atari collection, which has some some great things that people remember from those 2600 days, uh, but also a lot of things that people probably hadn't discovered from the later Atari days, such as the 7800, uh, which was Atari's last home console um in that kind of era before they went into disc-based stuff uh, so there's a game on there for example called ninja golf that the community of evercade really loves and, and whenever anybody plays it they think how has this not been remade into a modern game and your premise of that is you're playing golf on a golf course as a ninja and in between the shots you're having to run the gauntlet of ninjas coming at you and jumping and attacking them and it's such a simple concept but it's one of those things that those kind of retro games really really bring you know that kind of oh i do remember this or i've never discovered this but this is a great idea um so the atari collection comes with everything um that we sell uh, we have various different pack options uh, if you're in the us um you have data east as one of our pack options and if you're in the uk and the eu you have uh, namco museum as one of our pack options so then you start getting into really big hitters from from the console arcade conversions such as pac-man and galaga and dig dug all the way through to more modern things as well that that seem to have come out like splatterhouse uh, so we've got splatterhouse uh, two and three on one of the collections and splatterhouse three is a game i think is if you were to buy it new now is is reaching to the hundreds of pounds at quite an alarming rate so you get the the idea that there are these games that are highly valued that you can play for as we said like that that entry point of 15 pounds and then we we bring in some of a lot of the other big hitters, I would say, of the 80s and 90s that a lot of people remember. So we have both, the, uh, both of the Earthworm Jim games from Interplay, along with a couple of other Interplay games at the time, like Battle Chess, uh, Clay Fighters. We have stuff from Day Therese, like we said, like uh, Bad Dudes and uh, Burger Time, real big things, but also things mixed in with Stuff like Technos, like Double Dragon and River City Ransom. And all these are the games that everybody loves. But as Andrew was saying earlier, we have a lot of these other collections of things. And two of the most fascinating ones are the Mega Cat Studio collections, which really, really give you an idea of how people are programming new games for old hardware and still bringing new ideas and making a lot of fun happening with games like Tanza and Coffee Crisis. And um, Pico Interactive, who are a company that have basically acquired a lot of rights to games from over the course of the last 20, 30 years. So where companies have 
gone bankrupt and things have gone up for sale. They kind of bought little bits here and there. And they've got such a vast and unique collection of games that we started publishing that were originally on those systems. So people remember things recently. We've had things like Soccer Kid and World Trophy Soccer and the Summer and Winter Challenge games and all the way through to JRPGs like Brave Battle Saga. And there's such a wealth of, of titles that people know, don't know, are just discovering. And then as recently we you know we've we've got worms that is coming out on the system we've got code masters games such as sensible soccer coming onto the system we've got um really classic uh, stuff like the intellivision collection we've got british royalty with the bitmap brothers collection so that's games like the chaos engine and speedball and then we've got arcade conversions coming now at the end of this year so there, there's a wealth of it's far too many i mean it's spread about 280 titles that we got in in total across all of those cartridges so probably too much to list but enough to get excited about by just a few mentions <laughs> here and there but the decision process is is very much a curated one that that goes back to that fun you know what what is fun what's going to be good what are people going to recognize immediately what are they going to remember what are they going to ha- enjoy discovering for the first time like ninja golf and you know is it fun and that, i think that's the core of everything that we do is make sure that what we've got is worth somebody getting it and sticking it in the cartridge and, and having a good time because that's what we do we, we we get the games stick them in the cartridge and work out whether they're fun it's great the physicality because you know we're in a world with e-stores and kind of downloadable codes and stuff and you know just seeing users with a collection of all of your evercade carts all kind of lined up in those really fantastic boxes must be just like massively satisfying and it appeals so much to the retro gaming community um are these both compatible with the evercade verse then so you can have them on the handheld and on the verse yes yes uh all of it is compatible um from the hardware point of view so any game that's coming out on the front for now for the evercade vs is also compatible with the evercade handheld so all of the new games will still work on that and vice versa, any of the existing collection of the Evercade games will work on the Evercade VS. There is one exception to that rule, um, which is, as Andrew was saying at the beginning, that you know, licenses are a tricky thing, um, is the Namco Museum collection, which is our, our second and sixth cartridge, I believe the numbers are. Um, but the, the license that we have for Namco to distribute those games only uh, covers Europe at the moment and it only covers the handheld so they are exclusively available for the handheld we're working on that hopefully you know we'll, we'll come up with some kind of solution to that where you know everybody will be able to enjoy all those games across all our systems uh, but it is one of the quirks of licensing you know one thing that's obviously important to people that want you know physical games and you know it was obviously a much bigger deal in the past than it is today which is nice to see that you guys pay attention to this is uh, creating manuals so how do you do this then and you know make sure that it looks good rather than just you know photocopying or scanning the old one yeah i think when we when we looked at this in the, in the first instance we, we as i say we were looking at you know how do you make a cartridge and um how do you make a cartridge experience and i, I think the the manual as you say is really key so um we, when we started doing manuals we we sort of made them a little the way we we looked at it was make them a little love letter to each game so we we uh there's a bit of artwork there there's a there's an explanation of the game there's an explanation of the controls but there's also kind of who created it what which um maybe it might be the, the designers listed or it depends on what's available what the license or what let us put but um 
often. It just gives you a little insight into that game. Um, I think one of the feedback we had was people did want a little bit more information in their manuals. So I think that that's something we've taken in. In uh, I think our feeling was, well, you know, if, if you read the manual, it's to give you a feeling about the game. Um, lo- loads of games on, on the system are quite relatively simple. You can learn them quite quickly, you know. Um, some games require a load of explanation. And I think that's something we're working on to get a bit more information in there. Um, but yeah, Google exists. So people kind of tend to look up, you know, themselves. Um, yeah. We've also got a really good fan community on that that have been very passionate about not just the Evercade, but the games and everything that's on there. Some of them run their own websites that that host a lot of these original manuals that have been scanned into databases from a long time ago. People do YouTube videos explaining the games, and there's even a magazine that's been made from a community of people that review it, give you some did-you-knows and things like that. So where we haven't been able to get everything into a, a manual package, you know, there's there's quite a lot of resource out there that the community themselves have curated to, to help people that have come in or, or haven't done this before. So they don't spend hours trawling through the Google, but the, the joy is that it does exist and we can easily find that information. But I think a lot of the work as well with that goes down to Andrew when he uh, first got the console running and the team as it's grown over the year and getting people in to be able to do some great art, uh, some great design work in there as well to really evoke how the manuals felt when when you got them originally back in the day. Well, another hugely important aspect is the actual game and how it plays. And uh, what's the process of porting and emulating these titles and kind of tweaking them so they run perfectly on the console? Um, yeah, so so when it comes to emulation, um, this, this is another thing that's really key for the system. So we kind of want... What I think a lot happens with... Um, with kind of emulation consoles is often they put an emulator on there and then they bung a load of games on and it, you know the attention to detail is it's not there so what we've been really careful to do as much as possible is to try to give everyone the authentic experience um so uh, the emulators we've chosen often you know are the best available for each game um and then we we might customize the emulator we work with some some of the developers and we customize the emulator so you might find that you know we've got two or three versions of that emulator on the on the uh the cartridge itself which is running different games so we get the best experience for each one so yeah when when you plug in a cart you should you should have a really good experience from from an emulation perspective and it should feel as authentic as possible um, and look great and you know none none of the kind of glitches or, or issues you might find We've all played those kind of other systems that, you know, try to do emulation, but then the sound's off or the frame rate's not quite right, and it really does take you out the experience. Yeah, there's nothing worse than screen tearing and all that kind of stuff. So I think um, one of the, that's one of the advantages we've got. When we curate these collections, we really can say, all right, we've got, we've got 10 games to focus on here, guys. Let's make them as, as brilliant as possible. So that's, that's what we do. That um, kind of lack of multiplayer function, did that lead you guys to wanting to create the Evercade VS? In a way, yes. I mean, one of the key things um, that we remember when we were young, I'm sure you guys do as well, when you're playing games, you know, in the, in the modern context, when you play with somebody, you're playing online, you're playing via connection, you're playing over a headset. And while that's that's great and it's a brilliant experience and it's globally reached um, gaming around the world, at the same time, a lot of the games that were designed in those times that we are releasing were designed for people sitting next to each other. 
and whether that's people baiting each other, giving each other a little dig in the ribs, you know, some brotherly love or or anything that ended up sort of being a competitive environment there and then. I mean, arcades themselves were competitive environments for people that learn to master the game, either with a friend next to you or against somebody else who's trying to beat your score. So it was always a uh, a point where we didn't want to change any of the games on the handheld in order to facilitate if we could do something multiplayer then we would be able to just do it at a drop of the hat we wouldn't have to change anything that we'd already done and with the console as the idea it very much opened up to saying well we can do this because you know the console won't have a screen because it plugs into your tv so what can it have it can have multiple controls so therefore here we go we've we've got the multiplayer element so it's it's one of those things that it's always been there on the games and one of the first things a lot of people said when they did get the Evercade is that they would love to be able to play these games multiplayer because a lot of people remember playing these games uh, together with family members and with friends when they were growing up. So now the VS has that and we, and we brought that into the design decision from, from the ground up. Um, it's, it's really there. I mean, there's, there's not that many, if any, I think mini consoles of the, of the previous um, nostalgia wave that, had support for over two players and you know many games as well don't have support for over two players but there are some that do and there are some that are four players and i think that was key to us to make sure you know that we can get as many people around the unit and remembering that at the at the time of playing and you know luckily for us i i guess as well in so much as you know we we managed to um survive everything that had been going on over the last year in the world to be able to bring everybody this project uh product and Everybody was able to experience it at home and now they'll be able to experience it on the go as people start commuting and the world opens up again. There'll be people that very much want to go and see people and want to have those communal experiences that we actually had growing up. So it seems to like it's kind of coming at the right time as well to fulfill all of the needs of what a lot of the retro gaming enthusiasts will have. Yeah, I think you're right as well. Because when I think back to, you know, my fondest gaming memories of being a kid and a teenager, it was always with my brother or my friends, you know, it, all those fondest memories involve other people being there as well. And it, it is a very key thing as well, is that mm. there is that kind of communal love for it. I mean, I, I, I'll be honest, I've I've played, I, I say in recent memory, it's not that recent memory. <laughs> Just, you know, as you get older, things feel recent and somebody tells you it's 15 <laughs> years ago and you go, oh, really? Oh, okay. Um, but one of the things that, that I did uh, with, with some of my friends is my friend pulled out his old Mega Drive one night before we went out to a pub and went out to a nightclub as you do when you're much younger. And um, we made a drinking game out of one of the old um, side-scrolling beat-em-up games that was, that was on that console. Um, suffice to say, we did not make it to the nightclub. But, <laughs> but that's the thing. Like, we, we found a new way to sort of remember the communal atmosphere and then just, just play it together as friends and have a laugh. And I think that's one of the things that certainly in as, as the world changes again, as it's, I say go back to normality, but I suppose opens itself up to a new thing. I think a lot of those experiences and a lot of those memories will come to the fore a lot more and being able to, to, to do them with, with something like the Evercade is, is a real, real strong point for it. Um, not to say that there's anything wrong with playing online and, you know, hopefully at some point, some kind of online feature set will be able to come to the Evercade VS with its built-in Wi-Fi. Uh, so it's not com- not completely out of the realms of possibility. But, you know, online play is very much a, 
I mean, you are playing communally, but it's still a very solo experience for where you are. Yeah, I know you you can't punch your little brother in the arm when he beats you on uh, on Xbox Live. Well, in, in my in my in my previous <laughs> previous job before starting this, um, me and my colleagues, there was about seven of us every lunchtime for eighteen months would play uh, the uh, Nintendo fighting game with all the characters. Um, every lunchtime, it came out, we just played it, and then that was it, and that was our communal gaming every 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 um, officially sixty minutes, probably unofficially. 75 to 80 minutes of lunch but um and that was but that spurred so many things one of the people went on to create their own tournament around that game where they could get more communal things and having people come and play and i think that's one of the things that really is i say is missing from modern games and i don't know if you've seen anything for like a modern racing game or you know one of the things whenever a brand new game comes out there's always people that ask what about split screen yeah. Can we do that? So it's still there, and the and the the want for local multiplayer, co-op or otherwise, is is still there. It always has been there, and this is just a great way to to bring it back and get everybody involved. So, what are the main differences between the VS and the Evercade? So the uh, the handheld um, is uh, obviously a single player experience. Um, what the VS does in terms of how they're intercompatible, so. The VS, obviously, the cartridges you can you can use in both systems, but also if you if you have a save state, so if you're you know on the bus or whatever, and you're playing playing your your handheld and you save your game, you take the cartridge out, you put it in the VS, and you can the save is state is on the cartridge, not on the system, so you can carry on playing basically. So it's you know both systems work together there, um, and you can also use the handheld as an additional controller. Uh, for the VS, so you plug it in, and you know it works as a controller. Um, so, so it's, you know they're also compatible there. But I think um, it's kind of an ecosystem where you've got you've got you know different ways to play as much as anything. I know that other systems, for example, the Switch, you've got it all built into one uh, one thing. But I think with us, the, we've got relatively low price points, so we're giving people a choice to buy one or the other, or if they want to both. Um, and I think. It's a slightly different experience. I mean, you, as, as I was saying before, you, you can play um, 720p on the handheld as a single player on TV. Um, with the, the VS, you can play, it, it does 1080p um, for, for the system and you can, you can play, obviously, with your friends. So it's a slightly different thing. Um, hopefully, it's complementary. Well, earlier you mentioned the indie titles and the kind of new retro style studios that are appearing on the Evercade. Um, are we going to see any more of these? And also, what arcade titles are you guys looking at releasing? So, with the um, the the indie games, yes, we're we're looking all the time. Um, we've had a, uh, I, I will say, unofficial from the point of view that we haven't really overly publicised it, but we do have a developer program in place, and we're looking at how we can market a lot more of these independent games that have been designed around these old consoles and designed around the the older aesthetic of video games and and give these people some limelight in this um so that is an open thing right now and something that will be launched on mass in the future once we've managed to get away to to get all these two people um so that's something that we will see more of in future um, one of the cartridges that's coming out later this year is a second collection from Mega Cat Studios of some more of their great titles that they published that have been designed for uh, older hardware as well. So 
that's always going to be one of our key focuses. Um, as we've already said, you know, there's lots of classic games and there's lots of things that people are rediscovering for the first time. Uh, there's also a lot of these hidden gems out there and these great indie titles, and that's one of our core focuses. Um, arcade kind of comes into that rediscovery, really. So out of the gate with the Evercade VS and available separately when it launches, uh, there are four arcade collections coming, um, all based around notable publishers of the arcade time. Um, one of the, the big ones, of course, being Atari. Uh, so there's lots of Atari arcade games that everybody remembers, uh, things like Asteroids, Luna Lander, that kind of thing. There's also Technos, who were the developers of Double Dragon, uh, among a, quite a few other games as well. Um, things like Battle Lane, um, Super uh, Blockout, I believe it is. And they're all coming on that. There's Data East, again, another really big arcade developer at the time. So we've got things like the original Bad Dudes versus Dragon Ninja, Sly Spy, uh, Wizard Fire, Burger Time, the original um, arcade version, which... It looks like we've got Burger Time twice in, in some ways because it's on the original home consoles, but there's a lot of people that absolutely love the arcade version compared to the home console port of what was what was originally released, um, just from their own memory of playing it. So that was kind of essential for us to get that on there. And then um, our it's our third collection in the line, but one of the more interesting rediscovered gems is a Spanish arcade company called uh, Galco. It's one of one one of ones that's actually quite personal to me because I used to play the games that this company produced um, when I was young in the holiday in Spain. Um, but they're a Spanish arcade company that distributed a little bit to America, but a lot of people from Europe. If you went to the Spanish Sun resorts of the time or the Balearic Islands across the nineties, you'd have undoubtedly played a Galco game. Um, mm. There's a lot of things that people probably either don't remember or look at and then suddenly remember. You know, you suddenly get that ping of I do remember that game or I do remember playing that. World Rally's been one of the the key ones that people have said, which is a top-down racing game based on based on the Rally series. Um, but there's also great platform games like Alligator Hunt and Biomechanical Toy. And there's, there's all these things that people may not have heard of before, but they'll get them and they'll get them in hands. They'll play them and be like, this is really a lot of fun. And who's mainly buying the system then? Is it people that are like really into the retro gaming world or are you getting people that are like, you know, coming back into it and rediscovering it via the Evercade? I think it's a bit of both really there's kind of there's people in in our community who know absolutely everything about all this stuff um you know much, much more than we than even we do but there's also people that are just kind of picking up and 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 finding this stuff for the first time so it's it's a bit of a mix um i think that we've got some big titles and then there's these kind of hidden gems as well and this new stuff so i think when people buy a cartridge they kind of they know what they'll get they'll get kind of a mix of kind of weird and wonderful things. They'll get some stuff they perhaps recognize or remember. Um, and, and then they get the whole nostalgia in the package. So I, I think it's a real mix. Well, what are kind of your future plans? And have you got, um, you know, ideas to expand the console range in the future and keep it going? Yeah, we, we I mean, we've, we've hit, I think our, our initial, I think I did a kind of interview right at the beginning and we were saying, right, well, we want to kind of do, 50 plus cartridges in the life of the console but i can see it being much more and i can see all sorts of variety coming whether it's um you know new, newer titles with retro feel i think um we, we'd be looking at you know some some of the big players and all this and, and and that's one of the advantages of the system we can keep adding to it so if you buy the console 
then you know that you're going to get more and more stuff and you can pick and choose what you want. You can collect it all. You can do what you like. But, um, and I think with, with the VS coming along, it's kind of like a new thing, a new, a new way to play. And you kind of realize that the Evercade is not a handheld as such. Evercade is, you know, a, a company that's just delivering lots of, lots of ways to play these games. Um, and the cartridge is the thing that kind of links it all up. So I think we'll kind of be forever physical that would be something we're, we're always trying to do to, to be physical, uh, play physical products. Um, and I think Sean, we're talking about online stuff. And I think that there's potential for that. I think we're thinking along the lines of leaderboards or that kind of thing. So if you buy that cartridge, you can enter onto leaderboards, like global leaderboards, mm. that kind of stuff. That's, that's kind of planned for the future. I think, I think, I don't know, we've kind of looked at it like, um, like there's, there's sort of streaming and online stuff in, in music where you've got, you know, your Spotify's and those those big players and stuff. Um, we kind of want to be the vinyl, I suppose, of, of video games in a way. I, I kind of love it because nice. it's like a, a family of machines as opposed to, you know, a, a small mini console that's a bit of a, a flash in the pan. You just get it and then it's not updatable or, or usable in the future. And it's, yeah, it's a really nice idea, guys. It's one of those things, actually, we use the term family quite a lot internally like it's the evercade family of systems it's the evercade family of cartridges you know it's because i mean you know for us you know we are quite a small team in that regard so we are always quite close to the projects and quite close to the things that that we do all the way from like game curation to art creation to the design of the thing to, to getting everything out so it kind of all feels like a family from from like us as a team to us as the company to the products of the company and to the games that are out there you know they're part of a great big family of of nostalgia and memories uh, not just for us thankfully but to to thousands and thousands and thousands of people who love the fact that they've got a new way to discover these games in a, in a very playable way well sean and andrew it's been incredible hearing some of your stories and you know your passion for retro gaming and um keeping it vibrant and keeping it alive with the Evercade project I think is fantastic so um, thank you so much for coming on and uh, being our guest this week and keep up the good work thank you very much